If you have your Bible, we're going to be looking at Romans 1. We're going to do a couple of primers to the book of Romans, and then I'm going to preach through it in October, November, and December. I don't think it's an overstatement, and I firmly believe Romans is the most important letter ever written. The reason is because it's true. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son who was descended from David, according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you, who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Found out I was preaching at 9 a.m. yesterday, so... If you don't like something that I have to say, that's probably why. It's totally fine. I'm a professional. I can handle it. But um, I was wondering what pleasant, relatively pleasant ways your Saturday can get totally derailed. That's how mine can. It's fine. Liam, it's not clicking for me, so now it's you. If it catches up, I'll do it. We're going to talk a little bit about church vision, and uh, many of you have heard me talk about this before, so you know um, a lot of my thoughts on this. This will be, in many ways, a a repackaging of how I've spoken about vision before with different language. And the reason that we need to talk about vision is because we are called to a unique place— the gifts of the people in this room, and I know some of you have literally never been in the room before, but if you're a Christian and you find yourself called to this gathering, your gifts will matter and will make us a little bit unique. 90 to 99% of a church's vision needs to be about loving God and neighbor. And every Orthodox church, that should be their vision. But every church is made up of individual people, individual gift sets, individual affections that are ever-changing, frankly. I had a fascinating conversation during the passing of the piece about our liturgy. Now I want to ask that person to um, read some books with me and help us figure out um, how we can connect corporately with the promises of God. What are the best practices for doing that? It's interesting because Presbyterians have, and people that follow Reformed theology have a ton to say about everything. Our books are so long. And yet, it is not prescribed how we do Sunday morning. Sometimes I wish it was. So most of our vision, 90 to 99%, needs to be about worshiping God and caring for one another. But that's not enough because we have a unique role. This is a unique community. You have gifts and intelligences and affections places in the world that could be more at peace, where there isn't justice and could be, where there isn't neighbor love, where people haven't heard the gospel. When I got here in 2014, I preached a brief series um, on why corporate worship matters. 
In 2015, I preached on polity, and you're going to want to go back and listen to that, because I know all of you are wondering, are there sermon series on polity, which is how you run the church? There are. And it's actually essential, because it reminds us that all of us are called to act like the elders of the church, sometimes to our friends, meaning sit with them and care for them. All of us are called to the role of deacon in other people's lives, to serve and sympathize with our friends. All of us are called to custodian, to steward the resources God has given us. We call that role at the church trustee. Anyway, 2015, I talked about how we run the church. In 2016, we talked about 1 Corinthians 13, which is a definition by description of love. Because if we're not embodying that in our limited and imperfect ways, none of the rest of it really matters. In 2017, I preached on the Ten Commandments. And for me, these are all the building blocks of vision. Here's the thing, and I know you know this, but I'm going to put words to it. Well, I think you know it. Maybe you don't. It's arrogant to come into a place and cast vision quickly. I've watched a lot of people do it, and most of the time, they're humbled pretty dramatically. It's also irresponsible to never offer the people of an organization what is unique about our vision. And I've watched uh, pastors do that because they just want to preach the Bible. And so they never get around to what's unique about this particular gathering, whether that's one or 10% of the vision. Then I was ready to talk about our vision. And I usually use the words worship, community, and faithful presence. This morning I'm going to use different words to stimulate our minds to see that this is what all Christians are called to do, and all churches, and especially this church. The beginning of vision is glory. It is glorifying God and enjoying Him. It's singing to Him together, praying to Him individually and together, confessing our sins, listening to the word read and preached. I have excellent news for you, and you already know this, but I want to remind you. You're actually all part of the worship team. For reasons I don't, the technical reasons I don't want to get into because I barely understand them. One of the things that I disliked strongly about online only was the fact that it was online only. And it's so challenging to get harmony from the stage into the computer into your TV. But harmony is essential to the worship of God and to the uh, encouragement of one another. If you're like me, you wish that your ability (laughs) to harmonize was better, and yet God invites all of us into worshiping him, giving him glory. I just noticed this morning that in the middle of Romans 1, as Paul begins to make the longest sustained theological argument in the scriptures, I would argue, he ends up saying amen, because as he's explaining the theology to the church in Rome, he ends up in a worshipful place. And so there's an amen right there in verse 25. And then he ends Romans with a beautiful doxology that I'll read over you in a moment. We give him glory with our heads up because it is a joyful thing, because we're given joy by the Holy Spirit. We worship with our heads down, both because there's also sorrow that we put at his feet, but also we honor and submit to him and revere him. 
Sometimes our worship is head down. Sometimes it's heads up. That's why we give money to the church. That's actually part of our worship. And that's how, how generous God is, is that he gives us ways to worship that also help us avoid the things that erode our humanity. We're tempted to greed. And one of his ways of helping us avoid that, because that's not life, is by reminding us to be generous, not only to the church, but to the church. If you're here, some of you are deciding if you're going to be here, we need your help with Sunday morning worship. We need you to be participating. We need your hands, your voices, we need your minds. Because it's our role as a corporate gathering to give glory and honor to God, which also encourages one another. The Westminster Confession of Faith, the Shorter Catechism, begins with this question. It's a great question. What is the chief end of man? And it gives an answer. If you've ever gone through the Shorter Catechism, it's really fun because oftentimes the answers make us think of new questions. And then they asked those questions, and then they answered them. Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Easiest sermon point to apply ever. Show up to church, sing, and participate. We need your minds and your generosity and your hands and your affections and your skills. And here's the thing. I think worship is part of what it means to be a human being. The atheists I've interacted with actually understand this better than most Christians, that what's different about human beings is their choice of what to worship. I believe community and friendship matter for everyone, but for Christians, if worship is not a regular part of their life, community and faithful presence will be hollowed out. The purpose will be hollowed out. Because finding spiritual community and finding our places to be faithfully present as Christians, whether it's evangelistic or not, those things are hollowed out if they're not rooted in the truth of the life, teachings, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Worship is essential, so is community, so is faithful presence. Losing any one of them disconnects us from God's maturing of us. It disconnects us from joy. It disconnects us from the peace that the gospel speaks to our heart. So I hope that you find a way to participate in our Sunday morning service. That's childcare, music, first impressions, which is what we're calling ushering and welcoming and all that. Friendship. The beginning of vision is glorifying God and friendship. When um, I moved to St. Louis before Rachel and I were married, I was renting a 900-square-foot house in a corner lot, and uh, I was forgetting to mow the lawn. Those of you that know me well, you're not surprised. And landlord reminded me of the lease that said I, he gets to charge me if I, forget, if I don't mow the lawn. He had provided a lawnmower. I mowed the lawn, wasn't thinking at all. This will, again, not surprise you if you know me well, and blew all the grass into the street. Two streets, to be specific, forgetting that lawnmowers spit the grass one way, and of course, if I had, anyway. Two older neighbors named Dale and Dave came up to me, and they said, hey, need to clean up all that grass, and you can borrow my uh, leaf blower if you need to, and we can get a beer afterwards, and boy, they, they bought really cheap beer. That's fine. <laughs> but I was thankful 
for these neighbors acting like neighbors, beginning a friendship, being willing to push back on me. Friendship is not just pleasant. We're not just for one another. We're so for one another that we're willing to mix it up a little bit. Paul needed Silas, Barnabas, Priscilla and Aquila are some of the 23 people he names in Romans chapter 16. Timothy, Luke, he was friends with all of them. I think Barnabas was, was one of the only ones willing, of that group really willing to push back on him. I think it was probably hard to push back on Paul. Barnabas did it. It was essential. He needed it, and so do you. Without friendship, we will not mature. A friend asked me once um, if the Holy Spirit could heal them regardless of whether they ever talked about a very specific and challenging wound. And I was not satisfied with my answer then, and I'm still not satisfied with it. So instead of answering that question, I'm going to say to you, why would you avoid one of the most profound gifts of the kingdom of God? I could tell you ten stories about my oldest, closest spiritual friends, but I want instead to encourage you that you need spiritual friendship. And the reason it's part of our vision is because we won't grow up without it. Without people like Dale and Dave, it's a, fat, it's a simple story. We've got much more aggressive stories that I could tell you. I've told some of them in the pulpit before. And I know it's risky to do spiritual friendship. And I know it's not easy to connect especially when you're new. And it's really worth it. And one of the reasons it's risky is because of grand fallooning. You guys know what grand fallooning is? Any um, Kurt Vonnegut fans? So grand fallooning is when we assume that we have things in common with people that we actually don't. I was wondering if you were listening. <laughs> one of the things that... Um, blocks our spiritual friendships that makes them not all that they could be, that keeps us from growing, as we assume, and this is especially true in Christian churches, we assume we have tons of things in common, and we miss listening to people and learning their stories and learning from them. It's one of the reasons it's risky, but without community, friends, we will not mature nearly as quickly as we would with it, and probably not at all. The beginning of vision is glory, friendship, and neighborliness. And I know that like, doesn't sound like an exciting word. I'm deliberately using it, though, because, and I don't know about you, but I grew up in a situation, I grew up hearing, not from my church, actually, but from my school and the camp that I went to, that evangelism is kind of an extra special opportunity for Christians. 99% of the evangelism you and I are called to, myself too, and I'm a preacher, is done in friendship. And the only reason I don't say 100% is because I'm not the Holy Spirit. If you've ever studied revivals, you know this is true. And I don't know if, you're like, why would I study revivals? I don't know if you have ever studied them. The effective ones were always connected with friendship in the local church. 
and the ones that were not connected to friendship in the local church did more harm than good. There were not some 19th century, there was a 19th century revivalist named Charles Finney, and his mechanics were incredible. The things that he would do in their tent revivals were so effective. But because it wasn't connected to the local church, therefore it wasn't connected to friendship, when you went back to the places where hundreds of people or thousands had given their life to Christ, 20 years later, not only were they no longer calling themselves Christians, now they weren't even willing to listen. Most effective revival in the history of the United States, at least probably in the history of revivals, called the Layman's Prayer Revival. Pastors were not allowed to talk. Amen? No? Okay. Because it was, of course, connected to friendship because it was business people inviting one another to pray. And it swept the country beautifully. This is also why Billy Graham did not go somewhere unless the local churches were in support because he knew whatever good he did, if there wasn't friendship connected to it, it wasn't going to last and might actually be more harmful then good. This is why I call our local efforts faithful presence. Of course it includes evangelism. And of course there are times that it doesn't. Because it can be very unkind to share the gospel with someone when they don't want you to. My grandfather became a Christian uh, through televangelists, which which helps me hate them less. And immediately he went home and joined a church. At my grandmother's funeral two years ago, I got to thank the pastor. That church now has 25,000 members, which is bananas. But they had a pizza every Sunday night with a group of people. And I got to tell him also, you're the first person who ever said any words about Jesus that I understood. I'm a pastor now. Thanks. I think he was encouraged. His name is Bill Mason. We, as individuals and as a church, need all of these things... To, to partner with the Holy Spirit in this community. The reason that I didn't know until 9 a.m. that I was preaching was because Stephanie Clark, the CEO of Amira, was supposed to preach. Amira is um, an organization that has started two homes for uh, victims of trafficking. And uh, Stephanie came down with something, and I said, of course, she actually asked me what to do. And I'm like, what do you mean, what to do? Get better. <laughs> Don't give me that authority. Like, it's fine. It's not what I would do. If I got sick, I would just have sick. I can't come. Um, And we are partnering with them. Carrie Reeves made the connection. She lives down at our retreat house and is helping lead us in vision for faithful presence. Call her Catalyst for Outreach. And um, Stephanie's not here because she was sick. They have a gala coming up in October that I'm going to go to. And some of you volunteer down there. Allie Rice, Stephanie Pinson, Sheila Cooley, volunteering down there. We can't all do that. It's not all of our calling to do that kind of work. It is part of our church's vision to partner with as many of those organizations as we wisely can. And I'll tell you something that is really not a popular preaching style, but it's essential. Your limits, friends, are always welcome here. Because your limits are part of your calling. You can't care about everything. You can't do everything. You can't even do more than one thing, really, at a time. It's Jesus' role. One of the most profound things I've learned in the last few years is when 
faithful presence is missing from a person's life, they begin to doubt their purpose. And they don't do it intentionally. What happens when you don't have a place where you're faithfully present as a Christian, it could be a food pantry, it can be packing backpacks for social workers, we did a few months ago, it can be working with a group like Amira, there are men's versions of similar ministries, one called Epic, we're going to learn more about in November. When you don't find a place to be a faithful presence as a Christian, you begin to doubt your purpose. When you don't worship, it hollows out community and faithful presence. When you don't have good spiritual friends, we don't mature. And when we don't have a place where we're faithfully present as a Christian, we begin to wonder or doubt our purpose. The, reason, the other reason that churches need to be clear about their vision, though it's arrogant to do so too quickly, I believe it's irresponsible to not eventually have a vision is because it's also the path to discipleship. If you are in Christ, if you call him Lord of your life, then you want to grow in him and grow in loving and serving him. This is the pathway. Regular engagement within your limits of worship, community, and faithful presence. This is the path that he has given us to grow up in him. And what an honor. It's my favorite thing about the gospel. Is not only that we're loved and liked by God, that's not my favorite thing. For some... Well, never mind that. My favorite thing isn't that we're forgiven, though I desperately need to be forgiven of my sins. God doesn't just forgive us and love us. He calls us, us, into mission. First time I ever heard this explained was at a conference when I was in college, and they likened it to that scene in Hoosiers when Gene Hackman gets himself kicked out of the game so that his assistant coach, who is local drunk, respected by no one, can take him home. That's the phrase they use. That's a pretty good picture for Jesus inviting us to participate in his mission. You pray with me. God, we love you and we long to love you with our thoughts and minds and deeds, with our stuff, our actions. God, this is your bride. We ask that you grow her up and mature her that she might ever increasingly represent you well to us and to the outside world. Lord, we ask as, you, as we sing, Holy Spirit, would you give us a sense of all you're doing in the life of this church and in our own individual lives. Amen.